much for coming to this really special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. I think what we need to do to get a crowd here is to invite the president of ANA. And it looks, and, and I think it would, we'd be successful for every Grand Rounds. Um, so um, I'm Deb Hastings, and I direct continuing nursing education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And I uh, have a few items to share before um, we begin. Um, if you need or want um, CE credit, please be sure you've signed in on the registration form, um, which is located outside of the door. Um, you will be receiving um, an email from our office, which will direct you via, via a link to the evaluation form. This, is, this session is being recorded, and it's being broadcast live to folks. Um, if folks who are watching from afar have a question or comment, you can email Judy Langhans at Judith dot m as in may dot langhands at hitchcock.org and she will share your comment or question with our presenter. We want you to know that uh, neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have any conflicts uh, related to this um, presentation and no one refused to disclose. I also want to take the opportunity to share with you a conference um, Actually, this is hot off the press. These flyers are um, were just distributed this morning. It's a conference we're holding here that's actually related to the talk that Dr. Cipriano will be sharing. And it's our first uh, annual nursing quality conference. The title is Essential Knowledge and Skills for Clinical Nurses and Leaders in Reducing Patient Harm. We hope you can all attend. It will be held on November 18th from 7.30 to 4 at Bistro Nouveau in Grantham. That's down in, at the Eastman Complex. I have a number of flyers. I'll leave them out um, on the registration table. Feel free to grab one as you exit. So at this point, um, I'm really happy to introduce my friend and colleague, Judy Joy. Many of you know Dr. Joy as she is a former faculty member at Colby Sawyer College in New London and for the past several months has served as the interim executive director of the New Hampshire Nurses Association. So I'm going to turn this over to Judy and she will introduce some of our guests as well as our keynote speaker. Thank you, Deb. Uh, it's always really great to be here. Um, as many of you know, I've been, uh, I've, I was employed here many years ago um, and, and always think of this as part of my Upper Valley home. I would like to introduce um, members of the New Hampshire Nurses Association that sponsored uh, this afternoon's presentation. Um, and I think first, um, introducing my replacement. Uh, <laughs> I was the interim. And the job of the interim is to find your replacement, and I've done a good job. <laughs> uh, Joan Widmer. Uh, and two members of the Nurse Practice Commission um, that organized uh, and invited Dr. Cipriano to join us um, these couple of days. We've been, we've been working her to the bone, um, and that is uh, Jennifer Johnson who is, Dr. Johnson is the uh, new associate dean of undergraduate education at SNHU and also a nurse midwife at the Dartmouth, in the Dartmouth um, system. And um, Holly Clayton, also a nurse practitioner and um, chair of the Nurse Practice Commission. And now I would, thank you. Um, I would like to introduce our, our honored speaker. Um, Dr. Cipriano is um, the, and this is a, 
this is a long introduction because she's had a long, a very long history. Um, <laughs> the, 30, the 35th president of the American Nurses Association, and um, I'd like to remind you it's the largest nurses association uh, representing the interests of the nation's 3.6 million nurses in the United States. 1% of the U.S. population is nurses, and if we all get together, we could run this country. Um, that, that was not part of her introduction. Uh, Dr. Cipriano is a distinguished nursing leader, has extensive experience as an executive in academic medical centers, as this one. In 2015, she was named one of the top 100 people in healthcare and one of the top 25 women in healthcare um, by Modern Healthcare magazine. Prior to becoming ANA president, Dr. Cipriano was senior director for healthcare management at Galloway Consulting. She served in faculty and leadership positions at the University of Virginia since 2000 and currently holds a faculty appointment as a research associate professor there. Dr. Cipriano is known nationally as a strong advocate for healthcare quality and has served on a number of boards and commissions, so she knows whereof she speaks, for high-profile organizations such as the National Quality Forum and the Joint Commission. Dr. Cipriano was the 2010-2011 Distinguished Nurse Scholar-in-Residence at the Institute of Medicine. Dr. Cipriano has a longtime active member in the ANA at the national and state levels. She was a recipient of the Association's 2008 Distinguished Membership Award for her outstanding contributions to ANA and was the inaugural editor-in-chief of the American Nurse Today, the official journal of the American Nurses Association. Dr. Cipriano is certified in advanced nursing executive administration. She holds a PhD in executive nursing administration from the University of Utah, a master's degree in physiological nursing from the University of Washington, and a bachelor of science in nursing from American University. She was inducted into the American Academy of Nursing as a fellow in 1991. Please join me in welcoming an outstanding nursing leader, Dr. Pamela Cipriano. Thank you, Judy. Everybody hear me okay? Great. I'm really pleased to be here with you today, and thank you all for coming. I know you have very busy jobs, and so to get a little time away can be challenging. Let me first ask before I get started, how many of you are staff nurses? Okay, how many of you are also advanced practice nurses? Educators, quality folks, management roles, all other duties is assigned? <laughs> okay, great, great. So a nice cross-section of staff. We are going to talk about Safety 360 and the development of a culture of safety in our organizations, and that's been ANA's theme this last year. We, we know how critically important it is to have that kind of foundation in our organization. And it truly sounds like you have been on a very uh, deep and rich journey of, of improving patient safety here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Dartmouth so you know how difficult this work can be, but also how, how critical it is. So 20 years ago was my first real immersion into facing the hard realities of when something goes wrong. 
And this was just as we were beginning to understand the principles of just culture. But it was really before we had uh, seen the first report from the Institute of Medicine to Eris Human where we understood that perhaps up to 98,000 lives were being lost every year through medical error. So it was 20 some years ago and I got one of those phone calls that every uh, chief nurse dreads and it was from our pediatric cardiovascular intensive care unit. And the report that I received was that a baby had just died. It was a baby with a lot of congenital anomalies awaiting multiple heart surgeries, but he had received a tenfold dose of IV digoxin. There was, there was no question that this was a, a gross medication error. This was before the days of all of the barcode medication administration, before we had lots of electronic systems to improve safety. So we, used, we relied on our human systems. We relied on the pharmacist checking orders. We relied on the pharmacist looking at the, at the uh, drugs that were delivered. We relied on two nurses who, who you know, read the order, uh, did the drawing up of the medication, double checked each other, nodded and said, oh yes, high risk medication, yes, we have it right. Yes, here's the calculation, but it was wrong. Well, my initial response, is, as you could certainly well imagine, was to ask how were the parents of this child? You know, had we taken care of them? Were they doing okay? Uh, did we bring in the supports that were necessary? And my second question immediately was how were our staff? How were they doing? I needed them to know that no one was going to be fired, that it was important to recognize that all too often back in the day, there was a third victim whenever a, a serious or fatal error occurred. And I was not going to let that happen on my watch. I didn't need to ask the CEO. You know, I, my pharmacy director, was, it was his second day on the job. And so you know, I knew that, that I needed to help him as well as we really picked apart the situation, looked at, at, at what we needed to do. But I immediately went up and talked with the staff and again assured them that I understood that no one would ever have anticipated that this would have happened. And I didn't want this to be a career-ending error for that nurse or the two nurses that, that did the check or anyone that was in this process. It was horrible. It was just, it was gut-wrenching for everyone. The entire family of staff and, and uh, physicians in this unit. I mean, no one wants to go through that kind of situation. The family was incredibly understanding. And again, and I think probably part of what helped them, which was not material to the situation, was that the baby was very severely compromised in many ways. And perhaps they viewed it as a blessing or, or a, 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 you know, an act of fate. But what they said to me was, we just want to make sure that this doesn't happen to another family. That, that's what you can do for us. You can assure us that you're going to do everything you can to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so we did keep in touch with them. We did follow up with them. We did invite them back because we spent a year really working on a lot of significant issues. I was talking to Bridget about children's hospital and when you have a hospital within a hospital, you know, what, what happens? So we actually, I think, had a huge wake-up call that our pharmacy was not physically set up to really provide safety in, in the assignment of staff pharmacists, in the preparation and labeling of medications, 
how the entire system works. So we retooled all of that. We physically reoriented everything in the pharmacy. We changed the color of labels on pediatric medications. We, you know, made sure that everything that we could do within our control at the time, you know, was done. And we made major, major strides. Uh, again, recognizing that a tenfold error in, in pediatrics not only, you know, shouldn't happen, but can ha has was happening, and they are often, you know, very, very serious. So again, it was it was a major wake-up call in many ways, but led to many significant uh, improvements. So I did mention to Air is Human. So in 1999, what is the, now the National Academy of Medicine published this report. So some of you in the room probably were not practicing at the time, but, ha but is there anybody who says, I've really not read or heard uh, about the initial report that sort of sparked the, the safety movement to Air is Human? Anybody that this, this is a new title for you? Okay. Quickly following on the heels of that was sort of, well, okay, so now what do we do? We've unveiled this problem. We've recognized it as a, as a country. And, and the next book that came out was Crossing the Quality Chasm. So really saying, you know, we've got to come together. We've got to recognize that there is human error that, that is preventable, and we have to deal with it. The next report was, uh, came out in about 2000, and is it eight? Yeah, 2008, uh, published in Health Affairs. Don Berwick, who, went on, who used to be the CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, who probably none, many of you know or have read his work or have been involved in IHI initiatives, so out of Boston, said, you know, we have to really focus in this country on improving care. The outcomes of care, the, the care experience, the overall health of our nation, and reduce costs. So he was the first one to coin the term the triple aim. And the three takeaways, again, better care and care experience, better overall health outcomes, and lower cost. And so that became incorporated into the national quality strategy, which we'll talk about a little bit further on. And then in 2014, uh, we began to see information in the literature coming out about, you know, when we talk about improving safety and quality, it, there is a big dependency on the providers that are part of that care team that are creating that environment and that are trying to keep people safe. So it's really important to focus on care of the care team. And so that's now being called the quadruple aim. And I'm not sure if you formally embrace that here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock next, but again, we're going to talk about some of the aspects of that but really recognizing that because we are humans and because we, we, we know we have behaviors that are not always 100% of the time exactly what we want them to be, we have to really focus on optimizing the environment. And then the last report you may or may not be aware of, but in 2015, the National Patient Safety Foundation kind of reiterated its, its belief of how do we need to make sure we've got the right environment to support safety. And so all of the principles that, you know, again, I'm sure you're following are, are part of that. But one of the things that I want us to focus on is that, as you heard Judy mention, we now count our numbers at 3.6 million registered nurses in the United States. And while we, we think that that's a really big number, it's not nearly enough in terms of, of having nurses in all the right places empowered to do all the right things to keep everyone safe. But we know that it is registered nurses that are largely responsible for keeping people safe, for identifying where there are risks, for being that safety net. So it's really important that we recognize the critical role of the registered nurse. And when I, when I mentioned just culture, again, this was, I think, a very empowering movement where we said everyone has to be able to feel free to speak up. Everyone needs to be able to you know, stop the assembly line if, if uh, we believe that there's a potential for error, or be able to say to a colleague, regardless of what power position that individual's in, I think what you you may not have intended to do what you just did, or you may have you may not realize you've just omitted a step in our protocol that's really going to 
prevent infection. So everyone needs to be able to have that uh, confidence that without retribution, that those words and, and speaking up is really important. And again, nurses are a really important part of that. So let me ask you a different question. When uh, the Affordable Care Act came out, there, was, uh, there were a lot of things that really focused on the triple aim, particularly saying, how do we get better patient outcomes? How do we have better care? And so there was a program that was developed that was a public-private partnership called the Partnership for Patients. Now, how many of you have heard of the Partnership for Patients or, and or uh, either have been in a place that signed on to do something? Okay, so, so a small number. Now, if I ask that question differently and say, how many of you have been involved in initiatives to reduce hospital-acquired conditions? Okay. And how many of you have been working on reducing 30-day readmissions? Okay, the, the, well, smaller number of hands, must be your roles. <laughs> but those were really the two primary improvement goals that the Partnership for Patients initially focused on. And what we know have been the results was, is that the base year being 2010 and then the measurements uh, AHRQ reported in 2014 have been significant. And we have, in fact, saved over uh, 60, is it 80, 87,000 lives, sorry, uh, reduced potential hospital-acquired conditions by over 2 million and saved uh, over $20 billion in healthcare delivery. But we also know we are reporting more of these hospital-acquired conditions and, and continuing to recognize that we have not eliminated all the harm that's out there. But if you look at these, and we're going to look more uh, specifically, whoops, how are we doing here? There we go. The three biggest areas that are part of reducing harm here have been uh, pressure ulcer reduction, adverse drug events, and catheter-associated UTI. So the big blue one here. Okay, so that's pressure ulcers. And who is it that makes sure that patients don't get pressure ulcers? It's nurses. It's nurses. And who is it that is involved in uh, drug events, you know, or again, <laughs> averting any drug events? And catheter-associated UTIs. This is the work of nurses and the people that we supervise. So these significant events, and there are others there as well in terms of venous thrombosis, ventilator-associated pneumonia, or even now non-ventilator-associated pneumonia, it is nurses that are making the difference. So this 3.6 million number that we, that we boast is not insignificant when we think about the safety of, of everyone that we serve. Now one of the other things that we take into account is Part of the triple aim says we really want to raise or elevate the population health wherever we are. And it's so, so we, we tend to be hospital-centric. You know, we, those of us that have grown up in hospital systems know that uh, that's really kind of where the greatest risks are and, the, and, and that's where the greatest concentration of nurses are. But as we turn our sights more to saying we really want our population to be more healthy and we want nurses to be in that critical path of improving public health and averting public health crises, we also then want everyone to be knowledgeable about what's kind of going on in, in our neighborhoods and our communities and the states that we live in. So the good news is, so when I, when I go to different states, and in, in this time of year I have the pleasure of meeting with a number of our state nurses associations. So recently I've been to New York and, and Colorado and North Carolina. And I had a few numbers on most of these items saying they were doing worse than the nation. But you get all pluses. New Hampshire is actually performing better than the national average in all of these indicators. So with Medicaid expansion, you have a, a very low rate of uninsured. Your life expectancy is higher than the US. Your infant mortality is lower. Childhood immunization rate is, is great. Uh, deaths due to heart disease are lower. 
the uh, adult diabetes and obesity, again, pretty, pretty very highly linked, uh, again, lower than the national average. So you can feel really good about that. Doesn't mean that you can be complacent. I do know that one of the key issues is the uh, treatment for substance abuse and addiction, that that's a really key issue for New Hampshire, and that that, again, is, is a public health crisis. So while these, these indicators are great, it allows you to focus a lot of attention and resources on the other ones. Now, told you all the great things that we're doing, tell you how important nurses are, but you will probably remember that in May of this year, not just the Washington Post, but a number of major news outlets around the country, particularly health healthcare news, reported on a study from Johns Hopkins that said that medical errors were now the third leading cause of death in the United States. Now, I'm sure that makes all of you just gasp. Uh, you know, every time you hear it, whether you heard it in May or whether you heard it recently or you're hearing it today for the first time. Because again, we, we don't believe that the care that we provide is in any way ever going to cause harm. None of us would, would ever think that something intentional or a, a minor omission would in any way be harming patients. And yet, this is happening. And a large majority of, of this harm is occurring in our hospitals. Even as, as we think about our patients and we discharge them, they don't take their medications correctly and they don't follow their plan of care, it, there's really not that many significant problems happening outside of our high-tech, high-intensity areas. So, so we still own this issue. Now, the other part of this, remember we talked about the quadruple aim and that it's really important to make sure that we're taking care of our care team members as well as our patients and families. So in order to make sure that we have healthy nurses, that we have healthy and safe and ethical practice environments, we also have to recognize that there are real dangers in terms of the work that we do. So I'm going to share some of that with you. Now, this is not to scare anyone away of saying I have to find a new job uh, because you're going to know all of these things. But it, but it really does refresh in our minds how important it is that not only do we take care of ourselves, but as we have a role of responsibility in our organizations, that we're making sure that we're addressing them. And I have to tell you, I have contacts for magnification, so my distance vision is like totally blurry. So I will, I have to turn around and look at the screen every once in a while. So the first one, slips and falls. You know, how many, how many nurses or others in this room have had an injury because you've fallen on the job? Couple, okay. Not, unfortunately, you know, not uncommon, hopefully the number being reduced because we've recognized we have to make sure that all of our workers know when, when we need to be alerted to a problem. But you know what, when you're in the middle of a resuscitation in the emergency department, you know, there may be blood on the floor. When you're in an operating room and there may be a, uh, a problem that's occurred and all of a sudden you've got, you know, fluids that are in places that they shouldn't be. These things happen. Not, usually not the routine floor cleaning, it's usually while you're trying to help a patient. So these, these are concerns. Sharps and uh, needle stick injury, huge reduction. This is something we have taken very seriously. We've also taken it seriously as a country. Why? AIDS, absolutely. There's nothing like an emotional jolt and fear to get action. So I, I truly believe that if we had not had the AIDS epidemic, we would not have all the needleless devices that we use today. Uh, hospitals in particular said, okay, whatever it costs, we're gonna bring in all of these these uh, safety measures, and of course they became required in terms of accreditation and things like that. But it was the fear, rather than the science, that really sparked the action. Stress, fatigue, and burnout. 
I may have another, uh, I know I have another slide on this, but, uh, but the punchline was stress. Nurses have reported on our, on our uh, health assessment that they, 82% of the time, they experience a high level of stress in their work. The average person in the public is only about 40%. So nurses report double the stress on a regular basis. And burnout is actually getting a lot more attention. How many of you have recently heard uh, your other interprofessional colleagues say, I wish I were five years older so I could retire, or I wish I were 20 years younger so that you guys would have all these problems solved before I'm, I'm in the thick of it. Okay? And this is sort of a repeat mantra that we heard about 15 years ago because healthcare gets very stressful. Well, the word burnout, we've known about for years. It is now very commonplace to hear physicians talking about burnout. There is actually a, was a, a conference that was convened in July by the National Academy of Medicine that brought together over 30 physician groups to talk about the loss of joy in their practice and the burnout of physicians. I think you've probably seen the statistics. 49% of physicians are dissatisfied uh, with their work. The AMA has a whole uh, set of staff that focus on physician satisfaction. Uh, when the National Academy realized that there are significant reasons why physicians are saying they're burned out, they want to leave medicine, they have, have broadened their invitation for groups to come together around this subject. And we've been invited, as, as have a few other groups, to say, what do we need to do in this country to return the joy to work and, and to stop this trend of burnout? Now, unfortunately, I think we're almost experts in this because we have been subject to a lot of conditions of others controlling our life, whether it's the uh, financial staff, whether it's the requirements that we have for accrediting agencies, whether it's really, really well-intended programs that have us scurrying around collecting reams of data to report on quality measures, or whether it's, it's other things that, that we're doing that have just tremendously increased the work burden um, of our nursing staff. All of these things have contributed to burnout, and for the most part, nurses are employees. Now that so many of our physicians are employees in their organizations, I think they're beginning to recognize that powerlessness has an impact on you. Powerlessness can, can really fuel not only dissatisfaction, but a sense that, you know, if I can't fix the things that are really problematic for me, you know, maybe, maybe this is not where I want to continue to spend my life. So I think we have a lot to share. And again, care of our care teams and caregivers are important. The, the root cause of physician burnout is a little different than, than nurses. One of the things at the top of their list is how uh, electronic health records have intruded on their life. Uh, they don't like the payment mechanisms. They don't like the medical education changes and things like that. So their root causes are a little different. But if we share a common purpose to make our environments better, I think that can be very positive. We know nurses also have, uh, for years, had hazards, particularly in those handling chemotherapy, and, and, and even today, even though so much of it is, is uh, occurring you know, under hoods in pharmacy and places like that, nurses still have the risk of exposure. And so making sure that, that we are protecting them is really important. Manual patient lifting, a very important aspect of keeping our staff safe. The uh, ANA has supported for two, two iterations in Congress legislation to create safe patient handling and mobility mandates that every organization ought to be able to eliminate manual patient lifting. Much harder in home care, much harder in some of our ambulatory areas, but we need to strive for conditions that will allow nurses to safely have adjuncts to help 
move and lift people and to teach families you know, what they might need to get in their home so that people are not risking musculoskeletal injuries. Nurses are the fourth highest group across the country in terms of days missed from work because of musculoskeletal injuries. So how many of you have had some type of musculoskeletal injury on the job? Okay. Again, sometimes these create the need to move to a different role. You know, you just can't physically do some of the work. But it also might just lead to a life of chronic pain. And, and so we need to be thinking about how do we prevent these. Exposure to communicable disease. There isn't anyone in this room, I am sure, who doesn't remember the first Ebola patient that came into the Texas Presbyterian Emergency Department where two nurses ended up being infected with Ebola. Not because they weren't doing the right thing, but we didn't have the right guidance and protective equipment at the time, and they were exposed. And so we don't know what the next emerging infectious diseases will be. We've learned a lot about making sure that we keep all of our staff safe, that we have this rapid education, and that we are really thinking about all the vectors and vehicles that, that uh, really come into play when we have emerging diseases. And again, we're, you know, we're, we're all doing a lot of work in this area. Uh, you're, I'm sure you're involved in a lot of discussions about you know, preparedness and prevention, just as we are at a national level, as is the National Academy <coughs> of Medicine, as we work with the World Health Organization. So a lot of, a lot of work in this area. Violence, incivility, and bullying, which was once swept under the rug which we often heard our colleagues say, well, I'm just going to tough it out. It's just part of the job. Or nurses working in behavioral health saying, well, you know, they were psychotic at the time. But nurses being slammed against walls, having their hair pulled, being spit on, you know what? That's not part of the job. So it, it's really important, again, that we recognize we can do something about this. About a year and a half ago, ANA published a new policy, a revised policy, on how to, how to prevent and, and manage and mitigate violence, incivility, and bullying. What was really distressing to me is as our experts worked on getting the background information for this, what we learned was that about half is really coworker to coworker bullying and incivility. It's not the crazy person. It's not the irate family member. It's not the person who's st so stressed they don't know what they're doing. We own this. So we need to make sure that we don't tolerate it. It also means that we make sure that within our codes of conduct and our policies within our organizations that everyone has the same expectations. Now, you heard in my introduction I've worked in academic medical centers almost my whole career. And nothing irritated me more than seeing, again, someone in a position of power, and I'll name the C-suite and the physicians, be able to behave one way and if our staff behaved in that same way, they were fired. You know, and that just can't happen. And academic medical centers are sort of this last bastion of preserving the differential and the hierarchy and the patriarchy and all of those kinds of things. So I know how hard it can be to, to make these, these changes. But it, it's, it is absolutely critical. And then the last one, emergency response, making sure that we do have supports and uh, making sure that if, if we do have a patient or, or visitor that's, that's unruly or that there is a threat in any of our areas to our staff that we're addressing it. 
Now, when I said it's not part of the job, this is actually <laughs> one of the, the primary principles, too, that we, is embedded in our code of ethics. And ANA has been the purveyor of the, of the code of ethics for over 50 years. We revised it last year in early 2015. One of, the, one of the very early key provisions is that the nurse owes the same duty to self as others, which means it's important for us to protect our own rights. It's important for us to be able to make sure that we are entitled to the same protections as everyone else, that we speak up for ourselves, and that our needs come first. Now, I know a lot of nurses can grapple with that and say, well, you know, well, I'm really here to serve the patient, and the patient and the family is really my primary objective. But the bottom line is, if you are in jeopardy, or if your health is in jeopardy, or your safety is in jeopardy, you cannot safely and adeptly care for those patients. So your first duty is to yourself. And if you think about it, what we learn, too, with things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs is you have to have those very basic principles met in order for you to be able to function. So this is, again, an important part of what we do. So we talked about creating a culture of safety. There has to be a real palpable dedication to the fact that we believe that safety comes first. So this is the definition that ANA has. We've, this is from our interprofessional safe patient handling and moving standards. And what's most important is to focus on that very last part, which means we emphasize safety over competing goals. And usually those competing goals tend to either be hierarchy, or they tend to be financial. So making sure that safety is, is our first thought, whether it's for the, the person receiving care or whether it's for the care team. Similarly, we, we know that what contributes to, to being able to take care of the care team is having this safe, empowering environment, which means that we, we also look to our code of ethics that states that we have a responsibility to make sure that our environments are safe and, and be able to promote uh, quality health care. So, so again, this is now overtly stated in our code and uh, should be a nice support for any discussions that you're having, should there, should there ever be a question. But you can really feel uh, the difference when you walk into an organization and the staff will tell you what they can do and the supports that they have and the, and the reinforcement and support of, of their leadership to say, yes, you know, we have safety huddle every day. Yes, we have equalized the language so that everyone's voice is really important. It is empowering. I know that if I ask for, for something that I need to keep myself or my patient safe, I will get it. And uh, that is certainly some of the, the information that, that we've received just in talking with some of your staff this morning. So I think it's, it's uh, really important that, that, that that is, in fact, recognized. Now, one of the groups that we have to give a lot of credit to Going back 10 years ago, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses developed their standards for a healthy work environment. They just recently revisited that and revised them, but they really maintained their six standards, which, again, are, are pretty common sense, but they reinforced and said it's really important that all of us look for and recognize these traits within our practice environment, starting at the top of the list, skilled communication. Having been a, a critical care nurse early in my career, one of the, the studies that I remember reading that was done back in the 70s was done at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and it was done in a CCU, and the study was on how well teams collaborated and how did the, what, how did the patient outcomes compare. Well, you know, it's like no surprise. Where there was really good nurse-physician communication, the patient outcomes were better. And again, this was, this was back in the 70s. Bill Knaus was the author of that study. I eventually got to work with him at, when he was on the faculty at the University of Virginia a number of years ago. Uh, but we know how important communication is. We know that that's, 
that lack of good communication has always topped the list of the root causes in Sentinel events. And that's been true for every year we've been analyzing Sentinel events. And then we've got collaboration, effective decision-making, staffing, which in many respects also is at the top of the list, recognition and, and authentic leadership. So when we think about this care of the care team, again, it comes in many forms. It's the physical environment, it's the emotional well-being, but really recognizing that we, we all own the responsibility to say, how can we make sure that we have the best environment? Now, I mentioned staffing briefly. And as I was um, having a chance, again, to talk with some of you, I, I, I tend to be uh, disappointed that across the country, we have not always paid attention to the very clear, convincing evidence about st nurse staffing in this country. For you know more than 20 years, Linda Aiken and her team, and then researchers that she's helped launch their careers in other parts of the country, and repeated these studies in Europe and Asia, we know for a fact the penetration of registered nurses is critical to mortality and morbidity. We know that. Her studies repeated over and over again in med surge, average, daytime, for every patient over four in a nurse's assignment, the mortality of those patients goes up 7%. How can you argue that it's not important to have appropriate assignment for a nurse and that the nurse needs to be the one to help make that determination? We also know that the education of those nurses and, the, the, and so then the total number of hours that are, that are applied consistently show better patient outcomes. So, so it is really distressing to me when I talk with nurses around the country and learn that they have totally unrealistic, unreasonable assignments. You know, they'll say, I have eight or nine patients. I don't know how to fix this problem. I've talked to my manager and she says, just suck it up. You know, that just is not a solution. So we've been taking uh, the intellectual route to say, you know, we have all these studies. We've compiled the results. We've published a white paper with a, with a consulting organization last year, laid out all the background about safe staffing. We've had guidelines for safe staffing for years. We, we, are you know, we teach people how to do this. We, we uh, communicate with the workforce management companies and say, what are you doing in order to put you know, great data and, and, and analytics in the hands of nurses? We have all the tools but we are being ignored, systematically ignored, by many of the executives across the country. And so we, we, we also know there's a whole movement of individuals who would like to see uh, mandatory nurse staffing ratios, which ANA does not support for two reasons. One is we know that, that all, not all nurses are created equal. And, and so, I mean, we always used to, I'm sure you did the same thing when you were if staff in, in staff nurses, those of you that are in those roles now, you'd look and see who was coming on with you that night because like, oh, it's going to be a really bad night, you know, <laughs> or this is going to be a great night. Or if, or if you knew you were going to get more admissions or whatever, you'd say, okay, we can handle it because the A-plus team is on, uh, whatever. The, and, and so that, that's still true. But it's, it's also the fact that in California, the only state where we have this example, there, the legislation does not say you can't strip away all the supports. It doesn't say that it's also necessary to make sure that the nurse is doing the really critical knowledge-based functions of the nurse and they're not filling water pitchers and they're not delivering trays and they're not running to pharmacy to get meds. None, none of those protections are in there. So we know that in some of these hospitals, the, the support systems that would normally be there have been substituted by trying to make sure there are enough nurses that are there to meet the, meet the ratios. And the ratios are 24-7. So when someone goes on a break, when someone gets a meal time, there has to be someone there to replace them. And I was talking with someone uh, yesterday 
who said they, they have a friend who's a travel nurse and, and she has spent a lot of time in California and all she does is relieve people for breaks. Now I find that really difficult to think about the patient continuity that, that if you're only taking care of somebody for 20 or 30 minutes or 45 or an hour or whatever, how can you possibly really know the best way to care for them? So, that, so there are clearly issues with that. However, we've not been getting the, the best traction in convincing all of our hospital executives across the country that we absolutely have to pay attention to what the nurse believes is necessary for staffing and we have to allocate the resources. So, so we need to take a little bit more aggressive tack which we're, which we're working on because not everybody's a magnet institution. Not everyone is recognizing the importance of really following the evidence. Uh, I think this is a really big threat to safety because we know that, that nurses have to decide, they're, you know, are they gonna work around a problem? Are they gonna cut a corner? How, how are we gonna make sure that if we don't feel like we have enough people to take care of the, of the patients that we have in the moment, what are we gonna do? And so that really is a, is a threat to safety. And for all these reasons, again, things that you already know, we know that we have lower mortality rates, uh, lower readmissions, fewer errors when we have good staffing. We also know that, that if you are chronically understaffed, it is very difficult to, to keep staff. The engagement and satisfaction goes down, the turnover goes up, and then uh, we have this cycle of burnout. Now, as I mentioned before, stress is a key factor. 82% uh, of nurses say they're at significant risk and 41% of the population. This is a, a picture that was taken by an EMT of an emergency department physician after uh, not being able to save the life of a patient. The work that all of us do is called emotional labor. You cannot separate the fact that you're caring for human lives, whether it's very happy, productive, health-promoting work, or whether it's the really, really difficult in the trenches, 50-50, uh, life or death kind of work. And, and the times where these situations affected us, we probably all remember. When I worked at Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C., I was a uh, staff nurse in the shock trauma unit, but at the time, we were also the nurses that responded to trauma resuscitations in the emergency department. And I, uh, you know, one of the, again, I have many, many examples that I will never forget, but probably one of the ones that's really stuck in my mind was when we went down to a resuscitation. We had a very young um, African-American young man had been caught up in the drug wars and he had been stabbed multiple times. He was about 18 years old and he was talking very scared and you know, all of us had our little assigned places around the body and we were all doing everything. But we hadn't turned him over yet, you know, which is one of the key things you have to do. You have to be able to find all of your uh, wounds and, and be able to ex assess risk. But all he kept saying, and he was looking straight up at me, am I gonna die? Am I gonna die? Am I gonna die? I said, no, everything will be fine. We, we turned him over and found this just huge gaping knife wound which just triggered uh, an immediate bleed and he died right before our eyes. You know, we, we all have these moments that we know we can't save everyone. And those, the, the more extreme ones, they, they take their toll. Uh, we, f we figure out how to cope, but, but again, it is a, this is a part of the job, that we have to be resilient. We have to be able to figure out how do we alleviate caregiver suffering. And now we see it in caregivers of people in their homes. So we have to be sensitive to the fact that there's caregiver suffering in a lot of ways that perhaps we hadn't recognized before. I briefly mentioned the violence, incivility, and bullying. And, and again, the numbers are pretty staggering. The, the most... Um, 
the most difficult part of this, again, is up to half of the people that filled out our health risk appraisal, which is an online tool that, that ANA has been offering for about two years. We have about 10,000 nurses that have gone in and filled it out. would welcome you to, to do that. It gives you comparisons to, to uh, sort of the, your general uh, nurse population. But half of nurses have said they've been bullied in the workplace. And I, we know that some of those people have left their jobs because the, the stress of that was just too difficult. Oops, let me go back. So one of the other stats that, that is the uh, violence, 25% of nurses have said on this survey that they have been assaulted at work. Again, not part of the job. So I want to stress for just a minute the safe patient handling and mobility. I think Judy's, Judy's going to hover for me. <laughs> we just have a little, uh, little video that is nice if you want to use it to, again, reinforce the importance of safety. Nurses and other healthcare workers often suffer debilitating career-ending injuries and musculoskeletal disorders from manually handling patients. Based on a recent ANA survey, 42% of nurses feel they are at significant risk of injury from moving patients and heavy objects. 53% of nurses said they experience musculoskeletal pain at work. Musculoskeletal pain and injuries are major reasons nurses leave their jobs. Patient handling injuries not only impact the safety of staff and patients, they also impact your hospital's bottom line. Replacing one nurse can cost up to $103,000. According to research, SPHM programs in hospitals have reduced workers' compensation costs by 85% and lost workdays by 76%. Safe patient handling and mobility programs use technology to safely lift, transfer, and reposition patients to reduce the risk of patient injuries, staff injuries, and musculoskeletal disorders, ultimately improving the quality of care and patient mobility that helps your bottom line. That's why ANA supports actions and policies created to protect nurses and other healthcare workers through SPHM programs. To learn how you can implement SPHM programs in your workplace and promote a culture of safety for both nurses and patients, visit www.anasphm.org. Just do the, do the next? Yeah. All right, great. So just, just with safe patient handling mobility, uh, Senator Al Franken from Minnesota and Representative John Conyers from Ohio have introduced this legislation. We've done two briefings on Capitol Hill to educate the staff members who then influence their uh, representatives and senators. We don't expect that the legislation is going to pass anytime soon, but this is a, an opportunity to keep educating people. So if we're keeping nurses safe and, and we're creating this professional and, and ethical practice environment, it really is very much linked to nurse satisfaction, whether you measure it as satisfaction or engagement. Similarly, that has uh, specific effects on patient satisfaction and outcomes. I'll just say one, one more word on that. Um, we've actually we've worked with Prescani, which now has the National Database on Nursing Indicators, and all of the, the measures triangulate very, very closely, just as you would imagine. The higher the nurse staffing and concentration of RN hours, the better the patient satisfaction, the higher the likelihood to recommend. So it all comes back to making sure we have the adequate concentration of nurses and nursing care. Also part of the caregiver that, that we have promoted for quite a while is making sure that we have healthy nurses. And healthy in all different kinds of ways, not just physically healthy, but emotionally, professionally, spiritually, socially, all of these kinds of things. One of the good things about our newer generations of nurses is that they are helping teach the chronologically older nurses how important it is to have work-life balance. 
to have uh, time for yourself, to make sure that you are managing things like your own stress. And I, I, uh, I think back to a, to a scenario that when I was a chief nurse and, and we had throughput issues and people backing up in our emergency department hallways and, and things like that. And so I had gone up to our orthopedics unit and was talking to the charge nurse and I said, okay, Kathy, what are you gonna do today? You know, you got X number of admissions, you, you have X number of discharges. You know, we've got all these patients waiting to get upstairs. How can I help you? Is housekeeping a problem in terms of their schedule? Or, you know, what do we need to do to really get these patients moving? So we had this, you know, pretty intense conversation about all the things she needed to do and who she needed to call and what we could expect. And as I turned to leave the unit, I saw her pick up her coffee cup and go into the break room. And I thought, boy, this is really strange. We just had this intense conversation. I'm the chief nurse, you know. And she's walking back into the break room to take a break. And I thought, this is really odd. So I followed her into the break room and I said, Kathy, what are you doing? And she said, I'm going to have my coffee. I know if I don't take five minutes now, get my thoughts together, I may not get a chance for the rest of the day to really sit down and take a break. And I said, thanks. I, I, I appreciate that. You know, but my initial reaction was, what in the heck is she doing? because it just seemed so counterintuitive to me. But you know what? She was taking care of herself. She was doing the right thing. And I think we have to, we have to be sensitive to uh, understanding that, that perhaps the old ways that we always used to, to think were the right ways to do things really need to be modified. So I mentioned the health risk appraisal, that, which is at anahra.org, which is a great way to take a good look at the, your basic measures, your blood pressure, you know, what any lab values that you have, and you know, your weight and your stress at work. You, there are questions about staffing, and you get a very quick response that compares you to other people that have taken the survey. You know, all the all the data are de-identified, de but you can get a, a view about which areas you might want to improve with your health. More exciting, though, is information that you'll start seeing a lot more of after the first of the year. ANA is embarking on what, what is called a grand challenge, and this is called Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation. Our goal is to make sure that nurses bring their level of health up to the average of the U.S. And again, recognizing if nurses make up 1% of the population, but we influence many, many more than just ourselves, that we can have a significant impact on the health of the nation. We already know that when caregivers appear healthy to the, to the individuals they're serving, they are more credible and, and can have greater influence. Plus, individuals who are healthy are more likely to talk to the people they're serving about being healthy, to stop smoking, to make sure people are, are getting good rest and exercise and, and healthy nutrition and things like that. We're gonna, this is focusing, we have, we're in a test phase right now. It's gonna focus on five areas, rest, activity, nutrition, safety, and quality of life. Now, we're going to talk real fast here, just going to run through a couple steps because I think you're already pretty far on this journey. But just as a refresher or to help people who are perhaps a little bit more timid, when we talk about a culture of safety, again, we, we can't be certain that in every area of a very large organization that everyone's doing the right thing. Or where do you get started if you feel like the group that you're working with doesn't really represent the, the goals of the organization. So just a few tips that, that we would recommend to folks. The first one is to make sure that, again, there is this open dialogue and ability to have a conversation about uh, how the top leaders can support all of you in your, in your uh, quality journey uh, or safety journey, because it is really important. You can't just give it lip service. 
the, the type of huddle that you're doing every day is a great example of how empowering that is. That, that again, there no, should be no intimidation or retribution for someone bringing up a problem and being able to say, you know what, we're supported by the top leaders in our organization. The other thing is to make sure that at a local level, uh, everyone has the capacity or isn't afraid to start their, initiate their own quality improvement project. So many little things can become huge irritants and staff are really in the best position to say, you know, here's something that really gets in our way. Here's something that doesn't allow us to provide the best care. So being able to focus on that locally. The other thing about safety is, again, some people have to really kind of say, I have to be courageous if I'm going to raise an issue. If I'm going to say we have an individual in this organization that doesn't really reflect the values that we have about, again, following our protocols, about questioning whether something's been done correctly or not. And so sometimes it does really mean that we have to either find someone to help us be courageous or we have to, we have to know that, that we're going to take a risk in terms of raising, raising a particular issue. We can learn from our patients and families. And this is one of the things I think is so important in this day and age because when we used to have uh, more emphasis on really getting our patient stories and understanding what was going on before they crossed our, our threshold. We also didn't have as many old, old people that were confused, that weren't good historians. So really understanding our patients and families and what have they gone through and, and what, have, what, what are their experiences, what are their capabilities is really important, particularly when we're talking about you know, how do we keep people safe within the hospital. So, so getting, getting that really rich information that perhaps we gloss over as we're doing our check boxes, as we're doing our, our intake assessments, but really recognizing that patients and families are such a good source of information. And then paying attention to all the things that are really important in terms of our care for caregivers. Essentially, we talk about patient-centered care, and we really have to make that a reality that we live. And so all of this is really connected, starting with staffing, using our evidence base, uh, not just for staffing, but for all practice, really focusing on teamwork, an ethical environment, our healthy nurse, and really making sure that we're all working together toward these ends. Because again, if we think about our culture of safety, we're thinking safety first, it trumps all other areas, and that's what we need to do to keep our patients safe and to keep us safe. So thank you, and I'd be happy to hear your comments and questions. We've, we've got about five minutes. Yes? When you look forward kind of at the future for nursing within the next five years even, what do you see as kind of the principal risks? What, what things do you think we all need to be really aware of to help us grow as a so not, not specific to safety, but, okay. One of the key things that we need to be sure we are all doing is making sure that nurses, nurses are represented in key decisions that are coming before our organizations, coming before our communities, coming before our, our nation. We need to make sure that nurses' voices are there. And that's everything from encouraging people to run for public office to making sure that with, within the circles of our organization that there isn't, there aren't key decisions being made by by groups that have excluded nurses. One of the things that I say to audiences that are mixed with other C-suite, you know, CFO, CEO, CIO, CMO, is I say, you know what? If you're in a <laughs> in a meeting, and we know there's lots of meetings, 
where decisions are being made either about how resources are going to be expended or changes that are going to affect patients, whether it's patient flow or whether it's um, you know, access to services, any, any decision that's affecting the delivery of healthcare. You need to look to your left, you need to look to your right, and if one of those individuals is not a nurse, you are missing a critical voice. So that's number one for me, and it's been a personal goal to make sure that we have nurses not being ignored and not being invisible, but actively engaged and tapped to be part of these groups. And you don't wait for an invitation. I mean, one of my favorite lines is, oh, you, you know, you must have forgotten to invite us. You know, you must have left us off the list. Here, here's our representatives who will be glad to be there. What time should we show up? You know, so I think some variation of that is really important. The, the second thing is we absolutely have to get this bull by the horns in terms of making sure that within our practice environments we have enough nursing staff. And I can't overemphasize that enough. I, I used to have a slide, I should, I should resurrect it, that, that I took the year off. It was a quote from an American Journal of Nursing little article and it said, you know, staffing is a problem, we're never going to be able to solve it, I deal with it every day. 1954, okay, so, so it's, this is not new, but now we have 20 plus years of data to suggest that, that this is really critical and our lives could depend on it. People we serve would depend on it. So those are, those are two of the top things right now. Yes? Um, I understand and agree with you on that, but how, do you, how does a hospital fit that in with the economic climate that they face? Here we're having some issues this year. Sure. Yeah. Well, just like staffing's been an issue forever, money has been an issue forever. And we, we live and die by our budgets, if you will. But, that, but the fact that the budgets have always driven our decisions doesn't mean we've always made the right decisions. So in, in the international world, the, the dialogue is trying to change to say we need to stop looking at nursing as an expense. We need to talk about and look at nursing as an investment. Everything I've talked to you about today, the reduction in mortality, the reduction in readmissions, the reduction in hospital acquired conditions, why wouldn't we invest the appropriate no amount of resources to make sure that those really good outcomes are what we're providing to patients? So if that means we have to figure out how to reduce somewhere else, then that's what we need to do. The waste, we need to get rid of the waste in our systems. We need to make sure that, that we are, again, adequately resourcing the, the key functions. In reality, when you talk about a hospital, patients come to hospitals for nursing care. Yes, they get physician interventions, there's no question. They get physician testing or physician-led testing. But their recovery and the vast majority of what they experience is nursing care. So why would we want to do all this high-tech testing and intervention and then sacrifice their outcome after the fact? I mean, again, I think we can make extremely logical uh, <coughs> discussions about this. So, so what do you do about that? Well, so one of the, and again, you may have already done all these, but we just have to keep being creative and looking at what else is out there. One of the big things that many organizations have done to reduce their costs is to say, you know what, we have uh, eight cardiovascular surgeons, or we have, oh, we'll use orthopedics, it's easier to pick on them. We have eight, eight orthopedic surgeons, and they all want their own company for implants. But you know what, if you, if you standardize to two, you drop your prices dramatically. But you gotta get everybody to play in that process. And again, I don't know if you've done that here. But that's true with catheters, it's true with, with 
supplies in radiology. It's true in, in almost everything that you do. We have to go from catering to every physician preference, and, and I am not at all anti-physician. Uh, but what we need to recognize is that they have been living in an era that they got everything they wanted because there, there were years and years and years where there were no cost controls. And so preference, and again, this has been my life in academic medical centers. You want that really high performing, high income producing proceduralist or, or surgeon to have everything they want because you don't want them to walk away. But that's not what this country can afford anymore. So we have to say, let's, let's have safe choices, let's have um, opportunities to test. And if we find that we, you know, this decision wasn't the best, we can make a new one. We can change that decision. But again, institutions have saved millions of dollars looking at those kinds of things, millions of dollars working through different pharmacy benefit managers, working through different pharmacy suppliers, because drugs are a huge part of our um, uh, budgets. We all, but we also know that we cannot keep going to staffing as the first thing to cut, because that's, that's really not where the savings are. That's where you create risk. So again, I think we always have to focus on what are the non-personnel reductions that can be made, and how do, have we exhausted those? There's lots of companies that uh, you know help groups look at how we do that, streamlining our process, streamlining our uh, our purchasing, and, and things like that. So if you haven't exhausted all of the non-personnel ways to really cut costs, that's really what we need to look at. When you look at the bundling of payments now, and, and when, when we put our providers at risk, and I put all of us in that bucket, when you say, you know, you're only going to get X number of dollars, let's figure out how we can do this most effectively. People are incredibly creative. We don't sacrifice care. We actually streamline care and actually take cost out. This has been going on since the 80s. I mean, it's, it, it's very purposeful intellectual work that nurses can be truly key decision makers in. One more or not? <laughs> Okay, do we have one more, one quick one? Yes. Um, I think what we struggle with in staffing is the acuity, our case mm -hmm. index has really risen, mm -hmm. and it's hard to capture that. Any suggestions there? I'm really looking at how you staff to acuity versus your know, feedback to, you know, yeah. average daily census is X. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I think this is really where you know we we have these helpful workforce management systems. Case mix index, as you know, is just a proxy. Um, because it really doesn't capture a lot of the medical care. It's, it's very procedurally focused and that kind of thing. But again, I go back to the fact that the nurse is the one that really understands and knows, you know, what is the frequency of intervention of the professional nurse that needs to really interact with this patient? What are the other things that we're doing, uh, whether it's, it's uh, how we assign assistive personnel to be helping as additional set of eyes to, again, it's different if it's critical care versus um, intermediate or medical surgery, but what else can we do to make sure that we are, are using the tools that we know that make the registered nurse as efficient as possible? How can we make sure we've, again, taken out of that workflow the things that are, that are either getting in the way or that someone else could be doing? I mean, the, as you know, a lot of the conversations, how do we have people working to the top of their education and skill? And, and so taking a look at that is really important because acuity is, is going to change. And I don't know what system you have where you're trying to approximate the assignment of the right number of resources, but you know, having having flexibility in terms of how how you're able to to provide supports. I mean, one of the big issues under discussion, or you may have seen it, nurses uh, striking in Minnesota was that they wanted their charge nurses to not have an assignment and and have some flexibility. Well, you know, m most teaching hospitals have 
taken the assignment away from a charge nurse. I don't know if you do that here uh, pretty very extensively or not. But recognizing there, there must be that person who has the traffic control role that can understand when nurses are, are overloaded because a patient condition has changed or you know, their, their uh, acuity is really requiring more care than we thought. There are systems that people use where nurses will indicate a red, yellow, and green when they're getting into trouble and you, know, you shift resources within, within that unit. So, so again, my guess is you have the solutions to that. Uh, and so really, again, looking at how do we make sure that in the moment we're able to be adaptable. Well, thank you, Pam. Please join me in thanking you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Be sure you signed in. Have a great day. Pam will be here for a few minutes if you want to talk with her. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.